Trusting God in the Trials and Triumphs of Life. This is my big idea, the title of my sermon, or the sermon tonight, I'm, you know, this afternoon. Uh, I would like to thank Trevor for reading the bulk of that, uh, of that text in First uh, Samuel. I'll be reading the rest of the passage as we proceed. There was a little seven-year-old boy named Stephen. He went to sleep with gum in his mouth and woke up with it in his hair. What a mess, isn't it? When he got out of bed, he tripped over his skateboard and cut his lip. Then he got toothpaste all over his sleeve of his new sweater. In school, it was gym day, and he hated gym. When they chose sides for a game, he was the last to be picked. When he got home for dinner, his mother has cooked lima beans. Who likes lima beans here? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Which he hates. Uh, There was a lot of uh, uh, football and basketball on the TV. He hates all the sports. My kids as well, except for Olympics. His bath was too hot. He got soap in his eyes. His favorite marble went down the drain. And to add insult to injury, his mom made him wear the pajamas with the little birds on them. As little Stephen laid in bed, he said his prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Lord, thank you for this day, but don't give me another one like this because I don't think I can cope with it. I think I'll move to Japan or to Finland, which is the happiest place on earth, as we have learned. Such is our life, isn't it? In this race that is set before us, there are battles and blessings, trials and triumphs, hills and valleys. Rick Warren, the famous author of The Purpose Driven Life, said that he used to think that Christian life was a succession of battles and blessings, whereas now he thinks of life as being on two tracks. At any given moment in life, there are usually the blessings, but also battles to face. So you might be experiencing both trials and triumphs at the same time. How do we navigate this journey called life? How can we live life to the fullest, glorifying God? And we have been in the Beatitudes these past few weeks. I'm going to connect this sermon as well to make it fit as we are big in connecting. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. This is actually found in Jeremiah 17.7. So blessed, happy, flourishing is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust, all of his trust, the entirety of his trust is the Lord. As a brief introduction to this story, the story of Hannah, which most of us are familiar with, this uh, story overlaps the final chapters of the book of Judges. This is a transitional period in the time of Israel's history, a crucial period as Israel is now moving from the divided tribal clans to one king authority, or what we call the monarchy. The spiritual structure of Israel, if there was one at this time, 
is on a downward spiral. That's what Trevor has uh, uh, said earlier, summarized in Judges 21-25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king at this time. So this is a time of spiritual darkness, turmoil, and of decay. So this is the background of our story. I've broken down this passage into three sections. First is the problem or Hannah's predicament. Second is the provision or God's providence. And third and last is the proper response or prayer of praise, song of exaltation. There's a lot of peace there. We begin in verse 1 with a man named Elkanah. We have a small piece of history on him in that he lives in a small town in Ramathaim Zophim, about 14 to 15 miles from Shiloh, the main city. Also, he is an Ephrathite, which means he was born in Ephraim near Bethlehem. In 1 Chronicles 6, it is stated that he was a Levite by birth under the Kohathite clan. And even in this small piece of information that we got from him, he was supposed to be a priest ministering to the people. He should be living in, the, in a Levite town, not in a small town. Yet he remained a commoner for reasons we don't know. But gives us a clue that he isn't fully focused on obeying the law. Despite this, he goes up along with his family to the temple in Shiloh yearly to worship the Lord. Elkanah also has two wives, Hannah and Penina. And before we proceed, let us stop here and consider this for a moment because this is a significant problem, Elkanah having two wives. This is always contrary to God's design of marriage, which is one man, one woman, relationship covenant. In the Old Testament, we can get an idea that this is tolerated, but it's, it is not commended. Throughout the history of the Bible, of the patriarchs, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and of kings, of David, Solomon, problems always arise. There's nothing good that comes out in this kind of arrangement. There's always going to be rivalry, bitterness, and jealousy among the wives and the husband. So this is a dent in Elkanah's character as well. Now here's the problem we'll focus on. Hannah has no children, and Penina has children. It is said that Penina provokes Hannah severely to irritate her, and this goes on constantly, especially when they're going to their yearly trip in Shiloh. This is a hundred, a thousand times more annoying than your kids constantly jabbing at you. Are we there yet on your trip, on your long drive to your vacation spot? Elkanah also shows favoritism to Hannah by giving her double portions. And this just adds more fuel to the fire between Penina's aggravation to Hannah. You can see the dysfunction in the family relationship and the interaction. Can you imagine yourself in Hannah's situation being provoked, being irritated, being teased constantly? Even more than Penina's provocation to Hannah not having children, 
she's actually provoking Hannah's faith in the Lord. Hannah's hope in the Lord. Because as we look closely in verses 5 and 6, it is written twice for emphasis that the reason that Hannah has no children is because the Lord has closed her womb. Because the Lord has closed her womb. It is of the Lord's doing. So Hannah, having known in Deuteronomy 28, it says there that if you obey the Lord, then He will give you blessings, one of which is the fruit of your body. In reference to this in Psalm 1-7, to which is written after Hannah, but a good reference to us, that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of a womb, of the womb, a reward. And it's true to us who have kids. Children are blessings. Children are a source of joy and happiness, no matter how rowdy they are. Therefore, Hannah not having children is being seen as God withholding blessings to her. It says there that she wept. She's crying and would not eat. Her spiritual and emotional troubles are affecting her physical outlook as well. And on top of this, Elkanah, her husband, who is trying, trying hard, doing his best to console her, said, Am I not more to you than ten sons? Wow, that is quite insensitive, isn't it? I do this to my wife. I do this to Ruth. I always say, I, you know, I'll, I sometimes say the wrong words at the right time or the right words at the wrong time or the wrong words at the wrong time. Never the right words at the right time. Guilty. The proper way to say this, the more romantic way to say this, would be Hannah, or my wife, or wifey, or babe, or darling, mi amor. Sounds, that sounds better in English, or in Spanish. You are more to me than ten sons. You are more to me than ten sons. So Hannah, what did she do? What did she do first? Where did she go? It says there that she got up, went to the temple, and prayed. Her deep faith and trust in God made her to go and seek Him first. Brothers and sisters, this should be our attitude, our first instinct. This should be automatic in our lives, to seek the Lord first, to pray to seek His guidance. When problems or trials in our lives arise, we must go and seek Him first, as in Matthew 6. We must pray. We must pray hard. We must pray first. Never give up. So Hannah prayed with tears, weeping bitterly, and I love her prayer. She's saying to the Lord, to look into our affliction, to remember her and not forget. She's unveiling herself to the Lord. She's not concealing anything but rather laying herself open to the Lord. This reminds me of a story in, uh, of King Hezekiah in Isaiah 37. When the Assyrians were about to attack Judah, they were mocking him, insulting God. They were showing their pride in conquering nations and that the gods of these nations were not able to save them from their hands. And they're saying, what difference can the God of Judah do? 
and the messengers gave the letter to King Hezekiah. And what did King Hezekiah do? King Hezekiah went to the temple and spread it before the Lord. I like that we spread it. He unrolled, you know, if it's a scroll, the letter, he laid it open as if to say, here it is, Lord, as if the Lord cannot see it. Here it is, Lord, he say, in black and white, please open your eyes. I leave the contents and concern of it to you. And that's, you know, what, we happen, what happened, uh, the Assyrians, they were defeated even before the battle began. Brothers and sisters, we must lay ourselves open to the Lord. Be sincere in our thoughts, with our emotions. We should cast all our burdens on him, for he cares for us. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, so the Holy Spirit also will and can help us. And the way Hannah called God as the Lord of hosts and herself as his servant showed a lot of humbleness and meekness on her part. She's saying, you are the Lord of hosts, or in other words, you are the God of angel armies. You are the Lord of everything, and I am your servant. Know you're standing before the Lord, brothers and sisters. He is the potter. We are the clay. Approach him in humility. What's even more amazing on the side of the cross is that we can address God as our Father. Abba, Father. And just a song that we just sang, Good, Good Father. Jesus said in John 15, 5, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard of my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus is our friend. He is our elder brother, as in Hebrews 2. Only in Christ, only in the cross, can we approach the throne with boldness and address God as our Father. So Hannah prayed and made a vow to the Lord. Even this prayer, this vow is an evidence of faith on Hannah. She believes that God can give her a son. The boldness in her request the confidence that she will and can give him back to the Lord is a sign of true faith. She's saying that her son will be fully dedicated to the Lord. It's a Nazarite vow, a life full of service to the Lord. There's no alcohol involved, no haircuts like Samson, like the Apostle Paul before he has his famous haircut in Acts. So now we have a provoking insulting rival in Penina, a not-too-moral, insensitive husband in Elkanah. Now, Hannah's in the temple praying. What else could go wrong, right? We see Eli there observing. And because Hannah was only moving her lips and her voice was not heard, Eli accused her of being drunk. Remember, this is Eli. He is the high priest and judge of Israel at that time, but his discernment, his judgment, is really kind of poor, isn't it? It's like somebody coming here to church and pray, and Pastor Andy chewing them off, chewing them away. 
it does make sense. Although we can't totally blame Eli because this is, remember, this is a time of spiritual bankruptcy in Israel. So everything, everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. So it may not be that unusual if there are, you know, there are drunks in the temple. Nevertheless, Hannah defended herself and said that she is pouring out her soul to the Lord. She is lamenting to the Lord. Psalm 13, a Psalm of David is a good example of lamentation. Hannah, of course, has no access to it, but let's read it just to make a sense of how Hannah is feeling. So Psalm 13, a Psalm of David, it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And in this, uh, the next two verses are the resolve of David. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So I, I've read that lamentation is a powerful and meaningful form of worship because it places our trust, our love for God above the worst of circumstances in life. That God did not ask us to deny the existence of our suffering, but he does want us to collect it, store it. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, helps us do this. He aligns our will to him. And I like this part. The Holy Spirit is telling us, he aligns our will to him. He's saying, you know, like, Mark, you are going off track. Let me help you realign again. It's like uh, the newer cars today. They have this feature called lane assist or lane departure warning system where it makes an alarm, a beeping sound if you are swerving to your left or to your right. It, it's basically telling you, hey, buddy, get back to your lane. Now, re Eli realized that he made a wrong conclusion. So instead of shooing Hannah away, he blessed her to go in peace and told her that may the Lord grant her petition. Hearing this, Hannah's countenance changed. She's no longer sad. She's no longer lamenting. She's no more depressed. In faith, she made a request, a petition before the Lord. And now in faith, upon receiving a word from the Lord, she rests, she relies in that word. May the Lord grant your petition. Remember, nothing has changed in her situation yet at this time. Not yet. But she believes this is the evidence. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. She went her way. She ate. She's no longer sad. Hannah is acting out her faith. And what's the immediate application to this? Or as Anda would gladly say, a side note. What's a side note to this? Is that go to church. We have to go to church. 
Hannah determined herself to go to the temple, expecting God's favor, received comfort when she heard the word of God. You never know when a word of encouragement may come to you when you go to church from a sermon. I always enjoy listening to Andy when he preaches or whoever's preaching up here. Or even the, you know, the reading of the word, the, the, the prayer, hearing Trevor pray, Uncle Joel, you can see their hearts. And it's you know, just being surrounded with God's people. A foretaste of heaven helps me, encourages me, comforts me. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, brothers and sisters, this corporate worship. Let us encourage one another. Second part is the providence or God's provision. After this, the whole family rose up, worshipped the Lord, and went back to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, just at the right time, Samuel was born. The Lord God is never early. He is never late. He is always on time. The God of time and space is a punctual God. Hannah's petition was granted. Her prayer answered. But little did she know on God answering her request, God on a wider scale is also answering Israel's problems. We can picture Hannah's barrenness as Israel's emptiness or desolation. And now Samuel has come. Samuel meaning heard of God. This boy is going to play an important part in God's plan of redemption for Israel at that time. He will be the last judge and the first and one of the most important prophets in the Bible. He will lead the Israelites to turn back from their sins and worship the one true God. Isn't there a son born of almost the same predicament, born just at the right time, who is the prophet, priest, and king, born to lead his people to repent from their sins and worship God. We'll come back to him in a minute. Hannah was faithful. She trusted God in the trials and troubles and valleys in her life. And now the good times in the hills or mountains, in the triumphs of life, will she continue trusting the Lord as well? She did. She did fulfill her vow. She waited until Samuel was weaned. Some say this might be between ages of three to five years old. No matter, he is still very young, a toddler. She did not go with Elkanah to the yearly sacrifice in Shiloh for good reasons, to take care of the baby. And I love it here. It seems like Elkanah is already growing in sensitivity as he says to Hannah, do what seems best for you. Even more so is he growing in wisdom saying, may the Lord establish his word. Only may the Lord establish his word. After Hannah and Samuel, they went to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. They brought sacrifices with them and presented Samuel there. Most of us have little children here. Imagine yourself in Hannah's shoes or sandals. 
giving up your baby, giving up your first one and only child. This takes a lot of sacrifice, a tremendous sacrifice. I can imagine a lot of tears at this very moment. Hannah giving up Samuel. Hannah's example here is how we all should respond to God's gifts. Whatever the Lord has given us, they should be available to him for his use. This is what the Apostle Paul was conveying when he wrote Romans 12, to make our lives a living sacrifice, holding nothing back, giving our all. And when we do this, the Lord can take our sacrifices and make them into so much more than what we imagine. Remember, this is God, our Father, who delights in giving good gifts to his children. Notice the last sentence in the chapter, and he worshiped the Lord there. The he here is referring to Samuel, and that's incredible. At a very young age, Samuel is already worshiping the Lord. He must have seen this in his mother's faithfulness and trust in the Lord. Perhaps Hannah was already sharing God's word to him on a daily basis, even at a young age, telling Samuel, I prayed for you. God gave you to me. Samuel, I love you. Samuel, God loves you and cares for you. Samuel, I'm giving you back to him. Perhaps he has seen this in his father's regular worship to the Lord. And this is an encouragement to us, parents of little kids, to point them to Christ at an early age in their early formative years. Let our children see us when we worship the Lord. Let our children see us how we pray, not just during meals. Let our children see us when we read our Bible regularly. Let our children see us how we sing worship songs here at church or at home. That's why it's good for our church to let the age-appropriate children to stay here for uh, with us during the whole service so they can see us. Our kids are vision-oriented, and that's why they love comic books or pictures in the Bible. Action speaks louder than words, even more, is ever more important to them at this time. Samuel worshipped the Lord there. And it's impo important to note as well, Hannah here is entrusting Samuel to the Lord, not to Eli. She is leaving her son entirely to the hands of the Lord. Eli here is an agency for God's will and purpose. We know what kind of sons Eli has. It says there in chapter 2, 12, they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord, which is one of the most deplorable, woeful description of a person in the Bible. You know, shockingly, Eli's sons grew up watching their dad perform his priestly duties and responsibilities, but they did not follow him. Can Eli, as a father, be blamed for this? Perhaps so. He probably didn't discipline them correctly. It says there in the second chapter that Eli rebuked them for their sins, but perhaps he did not restrain them 
enough? Amazingly, Samuel grew up with Eli's sons, but didn't turn up to be a bad apple. Hannah here is operating in faith. She is trusting the Lord to care for Samuel, even through the supervision of Eli. She is living in faith, trusting in God's sovereignty. Now let's go to chapter 2. Let's go to Isaiah. I mean, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more ever so proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the, Lord, of the, earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So this is the third part, which is the proper response or prayer of praise, song of exaltation. We see here that chapter 2 begins with Hannah's prayer or Hannah's song. This is one of the three songs that are found in the books of First and Second Samuel. The second song is in the beginning of Second Samuel, a lamentation song of David on the death of Saul and Jonathan. And the third song is found in the 22nd chapter of Second Samuel, almost at the end. It is about David's song of deliverance. These three songs are otherwise known as the songs of reversal with themes such as how the mighty have fallen, the weak becoming strong, a switching of roles, a turnaround of situations, a reversal of fortunes. Hannah's song and the last song of David serves, serve as bookends for the books of First and Second Samuel. They serve as roadmaps as to how the story of Samuel of Saul and of David, the main characters of that book, will be played out. In addition to the theme of reversal, both of these songs mentioned the Lord as their strength, their horn, their salvation, their rock. Both of these songs mention a coming king, the anointed one at the end of their songs. Hannah's song also mirrors that of the Magnificat, the Magnificat of Mary in Luke. That's what Andy read to us earlier. It says, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For now, all generations will call me blessed. Isn't that beautiful? A song of reversal, almost a Xerox copy of Hannah's song. Nathan has this memorized, which gives me joy. Now, the song of Hannah. Reading this, I'm picturing it like she's singing this in front of Benina's face. Don't you think? It's like this close. She's saying this in rap form. Talk no more ever so proudly. There's a ring of personal vindication on Hannah's part that cannot be neglected. It shows her humanity. But more than this is that Hannah is exalting the Lord with her heart, with her strength, with her entire being. The focus is the Lord. Remember that this woman who was just a while back, only her lips moved, not a voice was heard, and now she spoke, she sings, so that all may hear. Praise is our rent. Praise is our due. Praise is our tribute to the one who deserves all praise. Take notice that he, she didn't even mention Samuel. She is overlooking the gift and praises the giver. Whereas most of us would do the opposite, and I'm guilty of this. Every stream should lead us to the fountain. She is attributing glory to God's character of holiness, of his almighty power, of his unsearchable wisdom and his justice. There is no rock like our God. Rock being steady, immovable. I picture this as in Psalm 2. While the nations rage and the rulers and the people plotting against the Lord, what was God's posture? What's, you know, what was he doing? He was seated. He was seated. He is not panicking. He is not pacing back and forth. He is seated on his throne. It even says that he is laughing. And we should take comfort in this. When things are going against us, when the world is falling apart, remember, God is sovereign above all. He is orchestrating all events in our everyday lives. As that famous children's song, he got the whole world in his hand. Continuing this theme of God's sovereignty, it says there that it, it is the Lord who kills and brings to life. It is the Lord that makes poor and makes rich, makes us rich. Some of us here have been working so hard, yet we do not see any changes in our economy. And we ask God, why is this? We've been working so hard, yet it feels like we're barely making enough. It is like in the book of Haggai, where the people of Judah lived in their paneled houses, but left the house of the Lord in ruins. They were sowing much, but harvesting little. They were eating, but still hungry. They were drinking, but still thirsty. They earned wages only to put them in a bag with holes in it. We have to consider our ways, brothers and sisters. We have to put God first and foremost in our lives. Consider our priorities, and all these things will be added 
unto you. So Hannah continues saying that the Lord is the God of knowledge, omniscient, all-knowing, and by Him actions are weighed. I like this. I like this a lot. Uh, his, by Him actions are weighed. This means first that by God man's actions are weighed in that He will render every man according to His work. Man has free will. If a person continues to do evil, such as the case of Eli's sons, there will be consequences. There will be punishments. By him, actions are weighed. This means also that God weighs his actions or that God considers all of his plans in that all of his plans have purposes and meanings. In other words, he has no plan B. He knew from the beginning when he created man that man will fall into sin. He didn't get surprised. He didn't get shocked by this. He knew it and he already has a plan for man's redemption, salvation from the start. That is why in this story, Hannah's many years of waiting, many years of being mocked, factored into his plans. These moments are not wasted. Such as our lives as well. You know, these waiting moments are crucial. It strengthens our trust, builds up our faith. This suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. The song we often sing by William Cowper has this in the second verse, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And I love it also in the third verse. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. God moves in a mysterious way. In the last part of the song, there's a mention of a king. Some thought that this is referring to King David. But this is so much more. This is pointing to the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. It says that the Lord, the God Father, will strengthen him, strengthen Christ to go through the difficulties of his humiliation, the path of the cross. And he, God the Father, will lift him up, lift Christ up, exalt his power. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If he has all authority, all power, shouldn't we place our trust in him? Corrie ten Boom said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, let us run with endurance this faith grace of faith that is set before us until our dying breath. We must be faithful, ever trusting in God, whether we are facing trials, difficulties in life, or whether we are in the mountaintop, in the triumphs of life. As for me, this is where I struggle the most, in the triumphs of life. When facing difficulties, I pray more sincere prayers. I pray the most diligent prayers. I Seek after him, following hard after him. But when I'm trouble-free, 
I often forget about God, to whom of which all blessings flow. I'm still learning to be faithful in both the good and the bad. Brothers and sisters, we must continue fixing our gaze, our eyes on Christ, no matter how our station in life is at the moment, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. How about you? When facing difficulties, do you go straight to God? Or do you linger on other things? Perhaps your strength, perhaps your wisdom, perhaps your riches, money in the bank. Do you trust God enough that even in the trials you're experiencing at this moment, He is doing it for your good? Or if you're having the time of your life, blessings after blessings, do you pause to thank God, to praise Him? Let me end with this quote from A.W. Tozer, which helped me a lot in the study of this word. He says, True faith is not the intellectual ability to visualize unseen things to the satisfaction of our imperfect minds. It is rather the moral ability to trust Christ, to be contented and unafraid when going on a journey with his father, the child need not be able to imagine events. He need but know the father. Our earthly lives are one shining web of golden mystery, which we experience without understanding how much more our life in Christ. Christ is our all in all. We need but trust him, and he will take care of the rest. Let us pray. Gracious God, may your word now gives us strength and accomplish what is intended, what it is intended to do for us, Lord. Whatever our lot is, whether we're in the trials of life or the triumphs of life, Lord, help us, teach us to say, it is well with our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.